This message was presented at the GYC 2014 conference at the Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Hi, we're going to get started. I'm just going to open us with a word of prayer and then we're going to jump right on in. Father, I thank you and praise you for this opportunity. I thank you and praise you for the people that are here. I thank you and praise you for the truth that will be spoken and will be heard and the lives that will be changed. Bless, just bless, Father. Send your Holy Spirit and speak through Diane and I. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We want to invite you on a journey to awaken, perhaps for the first time, Um, a deep, rich, glorious understanding of what is perhaps the most fundamental truth about our existence. We are valuable. You are valuable. Not based on what you achieve or become or possess. You're valuable because you were created in the image of the one who was and is and is to come. It's an intrinsic value and an eternal significance That is what defines us, and it cannot be diminished or destroyed. In pointing people to the value of human life, all human life, young and old, men and women, born and unborn, we point people to what is perhaps one of the most fundamental truths that will ever be. And yet, that is not the end of your story. Because we are not just a people created in the image of the Lord. We are a people who have been redeemed, set free from the bonds of guilt and shame, condemnation and despair. Through the power of the cross, we are recreated. For the post-abortive woman and man, meaning someone who has experienced the tragedy of an abortion, for the post-abortive honoring the sanctity of life, the value of life does not condemn, accuse, or vilify them. Rather, honoring the sanctity of life invites them to understand this truth, that they are intrinsically valuable, that their child, too, was intrinsically valuable. And though they have done what cannot be undone, just like you and I have done many things that cannot be undone, the Savior awaits offering freedom for our bondage, joy for our devastation, and hope for our despair. Thank you. Do I press it towards that or this? There might be a step I'm missing. Okay, I can do that one. Okay, right. Okay, one concern about speaking about this subject has been people are hesitant because they think, well, what if somebody in the audience has had the experience of an abortion? What about bringing that person pain? 
Well, I think being sensitive is huge, but I think being sensitive has kept us too quiet. I was one of those ladies in the audience, and I lived in a secret sorrow for a long time, and it was because nobody talked about it. Nobody knew how to talk about it. And that's why when I met Antoinette at the 2011 GYC in Houston, I was so blessed because the Lord had called her to use her voice, and she responded. She didn't just stay quiet. Now, the Guttmacher Institute is the research arm of Planned Parenthood, so these are their statistics. Between 1973 and 2011, nearly 53 million legal abortions took place. Now, now it's, it's past 55 million. 21% of all pregnancies end in an induced abortion. Now, an induced abortion is an in intentional interruption where the life of the fetus is terminated. There's two types of induced abortions. One is medical, which is using drugs, pharmaceuticals, and the other is a surgical, and a surgical abortion is invasive. That's when they do go into the woman's uterus and they remove the, the fetus as well as the placenta. Well, now, la half of American women will experience an unintended pregnancy by 45. Four in 10 of these are terminated by abortion. Half of these women have had at least one previous abortion. Now, who are these women? They're a lot like you and me. 18% are teenagers. 57% are in their 20s. I was 25 when I had my first abortion. About 61% of abortions are obtained by women who have one or more children. 37% identify themselves as Protestant. 28% identify themselves as Catholic. And I was one of the Protestants. I had been brought up a Seventh-day Adventist. I had gone to our church schools. I was a member of Pathfinders. I loved going to summer camp, and later when I was older, I worked at summer camp. I went through our academies, and I loved my memories, choir and band trips, temperance rallies, and Bible conferences. I loved it all, and I have great memories. Now, I had been baptized in elementary school, but it was an academy at 15 that I gave my heart to the Lord, and I remember it well. College was harder. The reason being is my parents had gotten a divorce during this time, and I saw the prejudice and the inconsistencies within my church. And I had to reevaluate the convictions, my convictions about this church. I distanced myself, and I asked questions that I'm sure many young adults do. Is this where the Lord wants me? Is God here? even with the hypocrisies I see. Does the God that I gave my heart to at 15 even exist? Was I just living in a little enchanted Seventh-day Adventist bubble while a child? Well, God is really good in all his wisdom. He knew how to answer each one of my questions. No question is too big for God. So when my college sweetheart and I decided to get married, we both knew that we wanted a Seventh-day Adventist home, and not just a Seventh-day Adventist home, but a Christian Seventh-day Adventist home. 
I felt the Lord had anointed this church, and I believe, still believe, we've been given a very high calling, which is a privilege. Well, excuse me, <clears throat> six months before my wedding day, all this bliss, bliss was shattered because I found out I was pregnant. And the shame and embarrassment was more than I could bear. How could I break the heart of my grandmother? How could I face the disappointed and critical expressions of those in our church? And my husband and I, we had only been intimate once, but that didn't matter. What did make matters worse is that I had had a series of x-rays on my lower back. It was required for work. The tech had asked me, is there any way you can be pregnant? And I told her no. And that just added to my embarrassment and shame later, because I knew. Well, I called every physician I knew and worked with at the time and asked them, if I was your wife, what would you want her to do? Every single one of them told me, abort, abort, abort the pregnancy. It was never referred to as your baby. It was just the pregnancy. When our life became a blur for me, I don't even remember my husband's response when I told him. I called the abortion clinic, found out how much it would cost, how far along I had to be, and I made the appointment. I was in a daze. Now at the clinic, I talked to a counselor first. She wasn't a Christian, just a sympathetic ear to my dilemma. And um, she assured me that at this time in my pregnancy, it was just a fuzzball, just a tiny fuzzball. Well, I had taken nursing, and I'd had plenty of anatomy and physiology, but it never occurred to me to question this. It wasn't a fuzzball. Now, my life had to have been in a panic blur for me to even consider having this procedure without any anesthesia. I look back now, and I, I, don't even, I can't even imagine where my mind was. I do know that I was scared to death, and the procedure was an absolute nightmare. The pain was so bad that I lost consciousness. Now initially, when I had gotten there, I was crying. I was very afraid and shaking. And the doctor had come in, and he saw me, and he came over, and he hugged me and held me, and he reassured me, and I was comforted by that. But when I passed out the second time while in recovery, he got very angry. He was on a schedule, one right after another. Now, something inside of me died that day, literally. It made an impact on me that would affect every aspect of my life. And because I was emotionally numb, I had no clue what was going on. I didn't understand it for many, many years. Now, you see, when it's all over, I felt a sense of relief. And many women, most women do, initially. But my sense of relief was very deceitful and very short-lived. The truth of what I had done was harrowing. It was so harrowing that I wasn't able to deal with it, and it just about destroyed me. I hated myself, and this man that I loved and wanted to spend the rest of my life with all of a sudden became repulsive to me. I had anger towards him. I found myself hating his religion, hating hearing him talk about his religion, the very things that I wanted in a man all of a sudden became repulsive to me. And my dear husband had no clue as to how to help me. I don't think he knew at that time either how the abortion had 
impacted me. I felt destroyed. How could this man want intimacy when that seemed to be the very thing that destroyed me? You see, the topic of abortion had never been a part of my life. I had no clue what the effect of making that decision would have on me. At the time, I had the best friends a girl could ask for. We were all traveling nurses, and I loved them, and they loved me. Now, they were there for me, supportive. They loved me. They didn't miss a beat. They could not have known the impact this would have had on me, or they would have spoke up. They would have spoke up. And many years later, now that they know I've come out and I'm speaking on this subject, they've read my book and my story, and they're heartbroken for me because they too didn't know. Well now, I taught my children when they were young that panic kills. Panic is the worst thing you can do when you're in a crisis because when you panic, you don't think straight and you're more likely to do something stupid and get yourself killed or get someone else killed. I worked in a regional burn unit for a while, and every once in a while we would admit a tragic burn case where someone had actually run into the fire instead of away from it simply because they panicked. Well, when I found out I was pregnant, I panicked, and I ran into that fire, and someone was killed because of it. Now, after my husband and I had been married a short time, I. Uh, got up one night, and I took the scissors, and I cut all my hair off, really short. There was to be nothing lovely about me, and I was constantly punishing myself. There would be times when I would sit on the toilet, and I would take the razor, and I would just run it up the inside of my arms, just, just, just watching it, the, you know, the, the blood. And I, I realized that there was so much pain on the inside, but I couldn't get it out. And it was like I needed to feel that physical pain. And in some way, it kept me alive. And um, of course, the people were clueless around me. I remember one of the girls I worked with, um, I went to work one day, and she goes, what happened to your arm? And I just told her it was my cat. She believed me. That was all. When I became pregnant the second time, after our wedding, I was convinced that I was unfit and terrible. There was no way I could be a mother. And I had a second abortion. I called the clinic, lied about how far along I was, and set the date. No emotions this time, no fear or crying. I went in, listened to the little speech, and got it over with. Now, just as that baby had been taken mercilessly from the security of my womb, my identity was being stripped mercilessly from my soul. Now, by this time, bulimia had complete control over me. Shame destroys, and I was slowly being destroyed by it. It digs a big, deep, ugly, slimy hole that you try to stuff just to deal with it. I would stuff food down my throat until I could not swallow anymore. And then there would come this enormous upheaval I was getting it all out. Now, strange as it may seem, I would feel good for a while. I was like, Phew, I won't have to do that again. But you know, when it I was compelled to do it, I fell and did it again. 
And this just confirmed the failure that I was, and the shame continued to pile up. It was a very lonely existence. What I needed was a release from all that shame, a redeeming purge that comes from the love and the healing and the forgiveness of a savior. The bulimia, it only brought more shame and loneliness. Now, so many of the joys of being a new bride were taken from me. I could not sleep at night, and I battled with depression constantly. I eventually went to a therapist, and she promptly gave me sleeping pills and antidepressants. But she never took a personal history to see what might be at the core of all this, what might really be going on for Diane to be this unhappy. Well, I eventually gave up on it and stopped going. Now, my husband and I, now we were best buddies. I loved my husband, but this was a huge crisis. Well, when we went to marriage counselor, she told us the very first visit that she didn't think our marriage could be saved. And to David and me, we were devastated. We wanted our marriage to work, you know. Well, we loved each other, and we wanted things to be okay. And this woman never asked us if we'd ever had a miscarriage or stillbirth or even an abortion. Now, these are issues that can create all kinds of unresolved emotions and play havoc in a relationship but she never brought him up, and we certainly didn't. Well, one night I remember scraping up the courage, because I'd heard it on the radio, there was this 1-800 number hotline for women who had had an abortion. And uh, I wanted help, I, I was dying inside. So I, uh, I called her, took a lot of courage. I remember right where I was standing in my house, I was in the washroom behind the door in the dark. Now, when the woman answered, I told her my story. Her first response was, you know that abortion is murder, don't you? Well, I hung up the phone, and I wanted to vomit. I was like, <laughs> now, soon after that, one of the girls I worked with in the hospital asked my husband and I if we'd go to church with her. And I loved this family. So we did. The next Sunday, we went to church with them. And this preacher was very loud and very animated. And that particular day, he was speaking on abortion. Couldn't believe it. Well, he got louder and louder and louder. And like I said, very animated all over the platform. And finally, with an outburst, he declared that God would not and could not forgive a woman who had had an abortion. <laughs> oh, guys, that was hard. Well, now, of course, of course, you know, he quickly recanted that and, uh, you know, set things straight. But as far as I was concerned, he confirmed all the reasons I had for hating myself. And I sunk deeper into that pit of shame. Now, those events, they shut and locked the door for me to speak about my abortions for a long time. And I closed up. It was six years before I ever talked to someone again. And my life was one of survival. No one knew. The bulimia continued. I lived in secrecy. I hid food everywhere, and I spent money we didn't have. I was painfully insecure, and my marriage was in shambles. By the time it all caught up with me, I had a three-year-old son, and I had six-month-old twins. 
I was exhausted. Now I loved my babies with all that I could give, but I wanted to quit it all. So many times all I could do was, Lord, hold on to me. Just hold on to me. I would pray so hard. It was, I was like a dying woman. Hold on to me, Lord. Well, now, right when I had hit rock bottom, my sister called and suggested that I go see a friend of hers. Well, this woman was very kind to me, and she took me back to the feet of Jesus that night. She helped me to pray. I was so beaten down, I didn't even have the words, so I would repeat them after her. She would pray, and then I would repeat after her. Now, before I left, I told her about my abortions. I trusted her with my deepest and deepest hurt and shame. She was very serious with me, but she didn't give me any reason to lose hope. She prayed with me, and with her help, I confessed that sin, that sin of abortion. Now, I knew my confession was sincere and that the Lord had forgiven me. In fact, later that evening at my sister's place, I remember sitting up in bed, lifting my hands, and I felt the Lord's presence come over me like I had never felt before. He healed me from my bulimia. I never again suffered from it or the consequences from it. It was a miracle. My life of survival did drastically change, and I had the strength and courage to hold on. I believe the Lord gave me that miracle gift as an assurance of his forgiveness. And the reason I say that is because I didn't realize or know the importance of dealing with those abortions on another level. There was more work that needed to be done. My journey wasn't over. Now, God is good to forgive us. He is faithful. But often those sins come with pain or grief or other consequences that need to be dealt with. And so often this issue, especially an issue that is so brushed up under the carpet, this issue is when it's tucked away like that and ignored. This unresolved grief or these emotions that haven't been dealt with continue to surface in other areas of our life. And this pain causes many to doubt or question our forgiveness because they feel, still feel so miserable. I've had ladies come to me and say, why do I still have so much pain if the Lord forgave me? Just, there's more work to do, and God's right there. It's not a matter of whether the Lord has forgiven you or not. But not knowing this affected my life for another 20 years. And it wasn't until after I met Antoinette that I was to realize this. Now I want Antoinette to come up and share with you her story. And um, I hope you share it because when I heard Antoinette's story, I realized, wow, if I had had my first baby, he would have been very close to Antoinette's age. So I'll just give it over to you now, Internet. And I'll continue with my story in the next session. Back in 1981, 
my mother was in an extremely abusive marriage. She was not a believer. She was in Georgia. She was originally from California. Um, her marriage was very scary. It was incredibly violent um, and also very emotionally abusive. And um, she began experiencing morning sickness. And she thought, um, I don't want to be pregnant. I can't be pregnant. I would not dare bring a child into this environment and this relationship. Um, and so she decided, I'm going to have an abortion. Well, um, she began to secretly give money to a friend of hers. Because back in 1981, abortions were actually free in California, where she was from. And so she was going to go back to California, she was going to have her abortion, and she was going to be done with this marriage. Uh, she began to give money secretly to a friend of hers, and when she thought that she finally had enough money, she went to her friend and said, um, I need to go, I need my money, I've got to get out of here. And her friend said, what money? I spent all of it. So she had no way out, and she had nowhere to go. Well, as it happens, her husband knew, um, my biological father, knew that she was experiencing morning sickness. And he had cut out this ad in the paper, and the ad said, hey, I'm alive, voice of the preborn. Uh, it was an ad put out by a Baptist church. And um, it, was a, it was an ad for a crisis pregnancy center that helps women who are in crisis pregnancy situations. So she went in, um, they confirmed that she was pregnant, and she said, will you please help me have an abortion? And they said, we won't help you have an abortion. Would you please come back for some counseling? So she goes back for counseling, and she's sort of um, halfway listening. There was a magazine that was in her session. It was a magazine from 1965. It was the first time the world had ever seen um, the baby in utero. And the magazine, we actually have a copy of it um, at our exhibit uh, booth. Uh, it shows stages of development. And she saw fingers and toes and arms and legs, and she read about development. She had no idea that the baby inside of her was alive and developing. She had been taught that it was just a mass of protoplasm. And as she looked um, at all of these photos of development, the Holy Spirit simply fell on her. And she became convinced, no matter what, no matter what happens, no matter how difficult, I'm going through it with my baby, and that baby was me. She and I have um, spoken about this, and I myself have spoken about it many, many times. I was not raised Adventist. I was actually raised Southern Baptist. Um, and because of um, the relationship with my father, um, I experienced a, well, just grew up with a tremendous amount of pain. Um, and difficulty. It's important to understand that our circumstances did not change. The Lord didn't just snap his fingers and suddenly it was a happy home. Life was very difficult and sometimes very frightening. But the Lord was faithful through the difficulty. Um, there was a time in my life um, that in response to the pain, I ran from the Lord. I said, I don't want you, and if this is your plan, I don't want it, and I don't want to run the race. But the Lord did not forget me in my darkness. He remembered me, and he brought me back to himself. And um, when he did that, around 2006, 2007, um, I began studying about the Sabbath, 
again, I wasn't raised um, Adventist, and as I learned about the Sabbath, I was just convinced I need to keep this day. Uh, and so I actually first began worshiping um, at a messianic synagogue, which was quite a bit of fun because they really love to celebrate um, the Lord. If you ever have a chance to go, I would really encourage you to. Um, and eventually was led to the Adventist church. My mom, in fact, had suggested, why don't, why don't you check out um, Seventh-day Adventist? And I said, okay. So in uh, January of 2009, I began attending an Adventist church. And um, I was, it was sort of like coming home. Um, the truth that I learned in the church, the people, it was the Lord was so specific and magnificent in leading me. I was in law school, my third year in law school at the time, and um, that church just embraced me, truly embraced me. They gave me so much material and uh, wanted to mentor me spiritually, and uh, they were just magnificent. Um, and I knew uh, I found my home. Um, the people there, they were not perfect. They were very human, just like me, but they lived in the eternal. They wanted to please the Lord with their lives, um, fumbling and faltering, as we all do. Um, it was in, uh, let's, I, it was May, May of that year. Um, I was getting ready, I was in Virginia, getting ready to leave, to go back to Georgia uh, to study for the bar, and um, one afternoon, I looked up um, the church's position on abortion. I had never um, even considered looking at that prior to that point because we're commandment keepers. Um, when I looked up the position, I was really, um, the guidelines that are all online that everyone can go and look at and that we will be discussing later on in our seminar, the fourth one later on today, um, I was really shocked with what I saw there was a tremendous amount of inconsistency um, in those guidelines uh, uh, in comparison to Scripture. And in addition to that, there was a tremendous amount of silence um, in terms of the issue being freely discussed and women and men alike who were being post-abortive um, being embraced uh, in that experience. I sort of had a crisis of faith because I had not joined the church at that time, and I really did not know what to do. Um, as I told you, I felt like I had come home. And if I could not join this church, I really didn't know where else to go. Well, my last Sabbath in Virginia, um, there was a visiting couple that was there, and I was just explaining my dilemma. I don't know what to do. What's your advice? And it was a visiting couple. I had not met them before and haven't spoken with them since. But the wife of the couple said, you know what? You don't not join. You join, and you seek to make it whole. You seek to change. And so in September of 2010, I became a member of the Adventist Church, and in Jan, well, I'd say early, early part of 2011, the Mafgia was formed. Um, Mafgia, as I mentioned last night, for anyone who heard, is a um, Hebrew word. And the G is very important. It's not Mafia, it's Mafgia. Uh, it's Hebrew for intercessor. And we are seeking to intercede for the value of life, the sanctity of life, from conception from your very beginning to natural death. But we're also committed to interceding for reconciliation and redemption for women and for men who are post-abortive, who have had an abortion experience. I met Diane um, 
in 2011 at GYC that year, where I, we set up, well, I set up an exhibit at GYC. And um, I'll tell you, Diane is remarkable. She is absolutely remarkable. And I have, since the moment, well, since I found out about um, Diane's story, my prayer has been that the Lord would heal and work a miracle and set her free. And as she stands up here before you, she is literally a miracle at work. Um, what is important to understand, though, is that her story, the pain, the tragedy, it's not unique to her story. We've spoken, every single time I speak about this issue, and I always speak about it in Adventist circles. It's always at GYC, it's always at ASI, it's always at, in churches giving seminars. Um, I meet women who are post-abortive, women and men, because every child has two parents, and so it's not just a woman's issue, because for every child who's aborted, there's a father who had a child who was aborted. Um, women have shared absolutely unbelievably painful experiences, and it's all happening in the church. It didn't happen when they were out in the world in a secular environment. It's happening right here. One abortion, two abortion, three abortion, four. A woman wrote us an email where she had had 12. And she's Adventist. Who's speaking to her? Who's reaching her in her pain and her darkness and despair? This is a critical issue. And I'll tell you, it has literally snuffed out the voices of people the Lord has redeemed. But who's going to tell them that? We have to tell them that. We can't simply say, oh, you've been forgiven, rejoice. It's specific. The pain, as Diane will continue to talk about, is it's gut-wrenching. It makes you want to die inside. Have you ever experienced despair? I have. And that's the level of pain and tragedy that women and men are living at. We have a tremendous opportunity, tremendous opportunity to be life givers by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are at... Yeah. I'll invite Diane back up. Oh, my. We're going to have a lot of time later for questions. So if you do have a question, I encourage you to write it down and, and share it with us because we're doing real good on time. Now, the abortion, I'm going to continue. This is actually the start of the second one, but since we're doing so good on time, I'm just going to move on with this one and then uh, we'll stop when time is up and then continue from wherever I I, uh, I finish okay the abortion was supposed to be a solution to a crisis but instead it has created a larger than life crisis now according to abortion advocates the post-abortive woman should be feeling fine about this decision after all, she is ex exercising her right. It is her body, isn't it? But it is it really. You know, 
I love the text in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. It talks about our bodies being a temple for the Holy Spirit. It says, you are not your own. And why are we not our own? Because we have been bought with a price. Glorify God, therefore, in your body. And I wrote this note down to myself. That baby growing inside its mother's womb was also bought with a price. Even if it's a thalidomide baby, which in my generation, kids my age were being born because their mothers were taking medication for nausea and the medication would cause their arms and legs to go undeveloped. And many, many babies, one of the first in this country that brought abortion to the attention was a woman who went to Europe because she told, was told her baby was going to have um, deformed arms and to abort it. And it's really interesting because I have a friend who has, was a thalidomide baby. And she's an awesome person, but her life could have been snuffed out just simply because she was a thalidomide baby. They believe if a woman doesn't feel fine, it's because something was wrong with her before she had the abortion. If there is emotional instability after the abortion, it's because she was unstable prior to the abortion. Now granted, if you've had a stress or a trauma, yes, indeed, it's gonna impact the second trauma. But it doesn't mean the only reason you're having trouble with that second trauma is because you have been traumatized. It's adding insult to injury. Some pro-choice activists claim that it is our religiosity or our religion that causes us to have a hard time after choosing an abortion. And I thought that was fascinating because in the late 1800s, thousands of women suffering from hysteria were incarcerated. Leaders of the French Enlightenment also held and encouraged the view that it was the dangers of religion that caused this kind of behavior in women. Now, even though there was significant evidence that this hysteria was the result of sexual abuse at a young age, there was no political support or social support for further investigations, so thousands of women remained locked in their insane asylums. You know, I thought it was fascinating, too, because Sigmund Freud was up and coming, and he was one of the ones that had spent hours with women in these asylums talking to him. And his first conclusion was this hysteria was due to a uh, sexual traumatic event. But when he didn't get the social or political support, he changed. He did a complete flip-flop, and his be opinion became, it's their fantasies. He totally betrayed the women and himself his profession. Their hysterical behavior was in response to a trauma, but instead of validating the trauma, the credibility of the victim was attacked. Psychiatrists and society preferred to think that the fundamental problem lay in the fragile nature of women themselves. Now this link between hysteria and the trauma of a sexual assault wasn't even seriously explored until the 1970s. And it was only in the 80s, the 1980s, that the traumatic nature of a sexual assault and then the resulting symptoms of post-traumatic stress were even universally accepted. Kind of tells you how society deals with trauma. I believe a lot in our church do the same thing. We don't know how to deal with trauma, 
so we avoid it. And I believe that's been part of the reason we've avoided this abortion issue in our church. We don't know how to deal with it. Well, you know, if we look to the wisdom of man, we're not going to know how to correctly deal with it. I think God has all the answers we need. Well, the same pattern of behavior towards trauma was seen in wartime under conditions of unremitting exposure to the horrors of trench warfare during World War I, men began breaking down in shocking numbers. Many men began to produce symptoms of the hysteria that women had. Well, this wasn't acceptable. They screamed and wept uncontrollably. They would become unresponsive, couldn't talk. Now, the military authorities, they wanted to suppress this news because of its demoralizing effect on society. They insisted that true men, noble men, would never succumb to terror, but find glory in this challenge. It was declared that men who were susceptible to the hysteria of women had defects in their masculinity. Isn't that sad? Once again, the credibility of the victim was attacked. Interest in this long-term effect battle trauma didn't take root until the 70s, when the Vietnam vets, coming back from Vietnam, organized, and they would form rap groups. And in these rap groups, they were able to share their stories. And by sharing their stories, they validated their own trauma. And by validating their trauma, they were able to give them, get courage um, from this uh, so that their, uh, the uh, bravery wasn't discredited. I thought that was pretty awesome. It was during this time that the definition of post-traumatic stress disorder, as we know today, was developed. But how sad, not until Vietnam. That's too bad. Now, let's see, let me look at the time. Okay, we got a little bit more time, so I'm gonna go on. Oh yeah, I gotta remember. Sadly, many today are locked into their own private asylums due to the trauma of an abortion. And I'm telling you right now, thinking about the statistics we went over, when you look at the statistics, there's more than likely there's another one in this room besides me that has chosen to have an abortion at one time in their life. But I'm telling you, do not despair and do not stuff it any longer. We have a God that is good, and there is healing in that, this land. And I'm glad you're here. You may be a parent who has coerced a child Many parents coerce their children to have abortions. Maybe embarrassment, it would bring the family. Maybe they wouldn't finish their education. It's not always that a parent is trying to be bad. They might be protective, but they don't know. Silence breeds ignorance. We've been silent too long. It's time we use our voices. I'm telling you, though, do not despair. There is healing in our land. I've experienced it. There's full redemption in our land. I can't believe I'm up front smiling at you guys. It's only by God's grace, so do not be discouraged and don't stuff it like I did for years and years. God knows how to take care of you. He will. So, anyway, I might be repeating myself. I told you about the women in the asylum. Once again, there's little political or social support. As Christians, we shouldn't be surprised by that. God wants us to be able to provide an alternative 
to the world. We are here as a light, just like Jerusalem, Israel of old. God wanted, through Israel, to give hope to the nations. We are the same Israel, spiritual Israel today, you guys. Now, prior to the 1960s, investigations of the effects of abortion concluded almost without exception that abortion... Oh, I thought that was my phone. I'm so glad I was going to get in trouble. Okay. But prior to the 1960s, investigations of the effects of abortion concluded almost without exception that abortion inevitably causes trauma, posing a severe threat to psychological health. Okay, what happened between prior to 1960 and today? And they're saying it's the woman's problem if she's feeling bad. By the late 1950s, population control advocates set their sights on regulating birth control and abortion. Major population control donors like the Rockefeller Foundation made research dollars available to prove the benign nature of abortion. The subsequent shift in social, political, and scientific thinking was all perfectly coordinated. By the late 1960s, the American Medical Association, the American Psychiatric Association, and the American Psychological Association all reversed their prior positions in opposition to abortion, cited this new body of research purporting that abortion was safe, and actively supported the repeal of anti-abortion laws. Their reasoning began to suggest that the negatively affected women, women were those who were most psychologically fragile before their abortion. Once again, instead of validating the trauma, the credibility of the victim was attacked. I really believe this is why when I went to the therapist, when my husband was in dental school and I was so depressed, in her thinking, why should she bring up an abortion? You know, she never, I understand now why it was never brought up as an issue that could be causing un, um, emotional problems. Because if she had been trained <clears throat> in this way, the American Psychiatric Association, she wouldn't have thought that could have been a problem. And that makes me sad, too. So guys, I see it is 9.48. Instead of me going on, let's go ahead and take a little break right now, and then y'all come back in here. Is that OK with you, Antoinette? Yeah, because that's only two minutes. And then we'll begin. Um, I'll continue from this point right here. So if you all want to go, if you want to stay in here, that's fine. I do encourage you, if you have a question, just to write it down. A lot of your questions we probably will be addressing over the next the number of seminars, but I want to give you that option. So um, I'll just see you back here in about 10 minutes, and we'll pick up again. This message was recorded at the GYC 2014 conference at The Cross in Phoenix, Arizona. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.